Welcome to Being Becoming Podcast. Together we are being honest in conversations about thoughts we're having and books we're reading in the hopes of becoming better, more able versions of our current selves. My name is Logan Hauer. Today we will be discussing Chapter 6, Set Your House in Perfect Order Before You Criticize the World, from 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote for Chaos, by Jordan Peterson. I'm joined today by my two good friends and co-hosts, Austin Stone and Patrick Dyer. How we doing, fellas? Swell. Cloud nine right now, man. So happy. <laughs> literally, oh, wow. literally for him. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> a better reaction than I could have ever hoped for. Wow. Um, I did want to start this conversation today carrying over a thought from chapter five that I think applies very well to chapter six. Pat, you actually brought this up after our last podcast I concluded. And so I thought it was worth coming back to. And it's the notion that Peterson talks about anxiety being more potent than hope and pain being more potent than pleasure. Something along those lines. Do you mind kind of expanding that thought or maybe clarifying it? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll get the direct quote from page 131. Pain is more potent than pleasure and anxiety more than hope. So he goes on to discuss um, the two sides of emotion he also says, then pain hurts us, so we won't repeat actions that produce personal damage or social isolation. Anxiety makes us stay away from hurtful people in bad places. All these emotions must be balanced against each other and carefully juggled in context, but they're all required to keep us alive and thriving. So it goes on, and if we kept going on, it would be a separate discussion. But then as it relates to this chapter, I want to ask the question, what about the potency of pain and anxiety keeps us from doing the thing we ought to do, which is setting our house in perfect order. Well, I think right off the bat, it's weird to hear anxiety being more potent than hope, especially given our the three of our backgrounds being Christian men, hearing the idea of anxiety of being more potent than hope. I mean, I bet he can explain it in, in the sense that you were just saying of, why anxiety can keep you away from harmful people, harmful situations, make you make more reasonable decisions. You know, it can have a positive effect when balanced, like you were talking about. But the optimist in me is having trouble coming to terms with that, even though I can see the validity of some of what is being said. The balance is the tough part because <clears throat> with the back end of the paragraph that I read and then thinking of setting your house in perfect order, it necessitates, it necess wow. We had necessitates. We had no, no, too. No, 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 we no, had no. a little bit too much of a little something. Just kidding. Yes, it does necessitate pain and anxiety both for setting your house in perfect order. So pain plus pleasure plus anxiety and hope, all those are necessary for the foundation of chapter six. So atheists exist. Pessimists exist. This is These are ideas of godlessness and negativity. But there's not really a category of people who don't believe that pain does not exist. You know? Everyone mm. can relate to that. Everyone. Like, you can talk to a nihilistic person who thinks everything's meaningless, but then once you break their finger off, they're going to be like, no, don't do that. So you resonate with that. You feel like everyone's embodied, you know? Whether, whether they want to believe that or not, like, they are. Like, I could prove it to you pretty easily. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, pain is more potent than hope. I don't think everyone comes out the womb feeling hope, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's a really deep 
question, Patrick. Why is it that you feel pain more than you do hope or more than you do a need to set your house in order? Because it seems right. Like, why wouldn't everyone do what seems right? Yeah, I'm just asking more questions. I don't even think I could start answering your question, Patrick. I've got more questions, too. That that, that quote seriously just sparks so many questions in my mind, mm. especially regarding chapter six. But it's like, if you were to set your house in perfect order, and let's talk a literal, like, cleaning your room. Jordan Peterson and tons of podcasts is talking about you need to pick one room and just go ham on it. Like, yeah. clean it and make it beautiful. Like, make it make it like a sanctuary in a type of way before you move on to the next. And and this is one of the things he means by perfect order, not just setting your house in order, but perfect order. Mm. So something like that. But in order to set your house, in order to set your room, to clean your room, it's going to require a little bit of pain and anxiety, which is weird. And that very said pain and anxiety is transformed by what you're doing with it. It's like a sacrifice that that's what sacrifice is transforming pain in a meaningful worthwhile way well said i really enjoy how he goes straight to the topic of revenge on page 152 so i'll just lead with this question because i want us to to discuss this what is the difference between revenge and a demand for justice because i'll read the quote here truly terrible things happen to people it's no wonder they are out for revenge. Under such, under such conditions, vengeance seems a moral necessity. How can it be distinguished from the demand from justice? My initial reaction would be that in both instances, someone seeking justice and someone seeking revenge, you're trying to hold someone accountable for their actions. Maybe the differences in vengeance seems more of i'm i'm doing this not only am i trying to hold you responsible but i'm trying to hurt you for hurting me or for hurting someone else whereas a, a demand for justice is i'm going to hold you responsible even if it hurts you it may well hurt you but we need to make this error we need to make right and that might be a painful process but it's worthwhile nonetheless Whereas vengeance in my mind is, no, we're going to right the wrong because that's the way it should be and you will feel pain for what you did. Sounds like two different parenting styles. Going back to chapter five too with yeah. something that stood out to me in that chapter was how he was saying when, when you're disciplining your child, you should hopefully not be angry with them. You don't want to be vindictive or vengeful in that sense. You want to discipline them carefully and with a level head, you know? Okay, I really need your help with this because this could be totally wrong. But uh, what if I told you the difference between revenge and justice is revenge seeks punishment, but justice seeks restoration. Yeah, try to imagine a scenario, a situation where, where revenge is embodied. Someone kills my family member, and I want to kill them. I want to punish them for what they did to my family. Yeah. But justice might be, holy crap, dude. <laughs> you killed my family member? 
I don't want you to go on killing. I don't want you to go on in that mindset. Can I get you to a psychotherapist and help restore your mindset? Like, why, why did you kill my family member? What brought you to that? Like, how can I restore you to, to more well-being, you know? Because at first, I felt like there wasn't much of a difference. Did that help? Definitely. Yeah, I think we can all agree that there's definitely motive involved that is different between the two. Or maybe you could call it a mindset or something. I think you're right in saying punishment, but I also don't think punishment's necessarily a bad thing. And the way you were explaining it almost seems like it would be a different word like vindictive. You can punish your kid and that could be a good thing. Although I guess you wouldn't want to punish a peer. Could we slow down? Could you define punishment? I think it'd be something like reprimanding misbehavior. I think that's seeking restoration. I, I think punishment is the means to the end, but sometimes punishment can become the end. Yeah, I think I know where you're going because there is some sort of correction being made and you don't want that to be the pinnacle point. You don't want that to be the point of focus. You don't want the force of the punishment to be the focus. You want, in a loving sense, you want it to be you love the person, you want them to learn from what they've done. That's why you're voicing this. You don't want the focus to be on the actual force of that correction in the punishment. Yes, I just thought of a definition for revenge. <laughs> because of that, revenge is dehumanizing someone to the object of your wrath. Wow. Whoa. You'll need to repeat that one. Dang. I think that sounds right because revenge... Because I think between us three, we could think we all think that revenge is not a faithful, healthy way of life. Like you shouldn't be going it's... out venging, seeking vengeance. So revenge is the de dehumanizing someone to the object of your wrath. That's all that they are. Because if you can't like like I thought because like the the family member, like if someone killed my family member, I could dehumanize them to the object of my wrath. You killed my family member? That's all you are to me right now. And you deserve to die. Instead, mm. what if I humanize them? What happened to them? What caused them to do that? You know, and I know, I know this is asking anyone a lot. That kind of compassion is otherworldly. I understand this. I could envision myself having a great amount of difficulty getting to that place. Oh, so yeah. Getting to that mindset. There's actually a story in the news. This is probably 10 years ago now of someone that her son got involved or mixed up in the in a gang and someone from the other gang shot her son and then went to prison and then got out but his family had basically disowned him so then that mother of the victim took that boy in and like no. raised him yeah wow they interviewed her and they asked her why they did that. And she said something, it was something along the lines of revenge is a poison that I'm not willing to drink. You know, this boy, he's young. Dang. He's my son's age. He reminds me a lot of my son. I want to do right by his memory. What in her life would have made her that wise? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Not only could I not understand the loss that she would have gone through, this guy is looking for something, for someone's approval, for love. And then she has lost the thing that she loves most in life. You know what's so powerful? It's it's just such an embodiment of what Jesus did for everyone. 
Because everyone has disobeyed, you know, the creator. Because <sighs> he created us, you know, to have a, a fruitful, loving, reciprocal relationship. Mm. We've disowned that. Yeah, man. So is the desire for revenge, is it completely sinful? I think it can be turned toward a restorative justice kind of mm. ethos, which I think is redemptive. So the natural feeling when something like awful like that would happen, of course, would be for revenge. But if you can humble yourself enough to rem remember that they're a human with a past and that Jesus bared the penalty, you can steer it in the right direction. So Jesus walks into a temple and sees his house being turned into a den of robbers and people taking advantage of poor folks trying to seek relationship with God. And he just flips from tables, bro. There's some vengeance there. Is there vengeance there? There's definitely anger there. There's indignation. Definitely some anger. The action of flipping the tables is probably vengeful. To the point earlier, Austin, that, or the question that you asked, is that justice for the injustice? Or is that vengeful? I guess, circling back, there, there probably is a distinguishment between those two things. So I pulled up the definition of revenge. The action of inflicting hurt or harm on someone for an injury or wrong suffered. So I guess you, by that definition, you could say Jesus was having revenge on those people. Was there harm, though? Harm to their pocketbook, but I don't know. How do you define harm? I, yeah, it's not physical. Yeah, but... yeah, that's true. That's true. Which is justified, right? Like, I don't think all revenge Definitely. is justified. Based well, off of breaking that the law. definition that you just read, that would qualify as revenge. I mean, based on that definition, I think. Because there yeah. would be reputational yeah. harm. There would be financial losses in the moment, but then moving forward due to the reputational harm. But that wasn't the object of his revenge. The object was to restore right yeah. relationships in God's temple. Mm. Got so, it. So you're saying it would it would not have been revenge; it would have been justice. It's both. Um, I think I think it's a it's a it's a both. journey. <laughs> it would have been both. Yeah, because revenge is often a circle. Like it started with revenge, because you're getting back mm. at someone else, and then they're getting back at you, and yeah. there's no desire for restoration. So, going off of that revenge notion or just vengeance in general i thought a very interesting way he started out was with the mass shooters uh, he mentioned sandy hook columbine colorado theater gunman and addressing the psychology of someone like that or a person like that because i think for myself i'm wondering how could someone ever do that or get to the point where that's their only option or whatever would you say it's because of the harm that's been done done to them and they think they're taking some sort of vengeance out on the world through hurting these people or do you think there's something more to it than that i think what you just said was peterson's take yeah it, no it definitely was but I, I guess what i'm asking is do you guys agree mm. or What's your point of difference? I just think it's complex. I mean, I, could, could you reduce it to that? Like, 
<sighs> well, I mean, it's definitely more complicated than that. But I'm curious, I guess, just all your thoughts around that area. Yeah, I've never wanted to kill someone, so I don't quite know how that feels. <laughs> but uh, it's, it would probably be all-consuming kind of experience. Dang. I think, yes, definitely all-consuming. I mean, just trying to put myself in that, that kind of position. When I was in my car wreck, if I would have had a family member in there and they wouldn't have made it, I would have been in a blind rage mm. and probably would have killed the woman that did that. And I know I've said that to you guys before, but, and I know that's wrong, but that is I, like, especially the few days after when yeah. the emotion, emotional damage and all that stuff was like at its peak with me. And I was really able to think about it. You're being honest with your shadow self. I think we all do have that. Yeah. yeah. I am. Yeah. Truthfully. Like I remember my, like my dad, I remember came up and was like making sure like after 30 minutes, he finally got there. And I was just like beating the ground with my fist so hard. I was like, every day you and mom have come with me to the gym for the last seven days, but you both didn't today because you weren't feeling well. And this is why. And I was like, this would be her. The ground would be mm. her if it were you guys in the car with me. What was your dad's response to that? So I can't. Yeah, he just man. he just hugged, yeah, hugged me. That's, that's wow. all. But could that level of blind rage be scaled to... A school of elementary school children who this guy's never had interactions with so you say no okay no definitely not. i don't think so like was that dude's experience the same kind of rage you were still no i'm sure it was but even stronger and then something just probably different just in his literal like anatomy of his brain just pushing him because yeah he it, it was it was to people he's never even had an experience with it was just pure, pure vengeance against the world for the way it is. Going back to our talk on Russo's kind of view of the world too, of and mm -hmm. and just I think even beyond that, of children kind of are innocence or somehow symbolic. There's some kind of relation there, and a lot of these people I think are experiencing traumatic things in their childhood, and that innocence is being taken from them, so they're taking it out on someone else. So Logan, I think the Sandy Hook example's tough because he didn't really quite did he leave a letter why he did it but like the columbine kids did the columbine kids did he did share excerpts from the columbine shooters and that was to get to that point you know it's tough reading that those quotes in the book yeah. how someone could be in that line of thinking because the quote was something like give the world back to the animals we don't deserve to be alive what an ignorant quote though if that guy really meant it, yeah. Animals are more ruthless than humans. I think Pearson kind of summed it up well by saying, like, for the person who's thinking in that way, their line of thought essentially is this world of experience is insufficient and evil, so to hell with everything. Wow. wow. You know, it. it's almost like just burn wow. everything down. You can't think that way without believing oh okay this is a completely separate thought but i it's almost presumable completely that this kid was an atheist probably or these kids but you can't think those thoughts rationally Ooh. without believing in a higher being in believing in god or something so there's no way he believed himself what do you, what do you mean there's no way he could believe himself so if he literally thinks 
that the world is so bad and to hell with everything, he should have just accepted it for the way it was and killed himself if it were something what he thought, if, it, if that were the way he thought it was. Because that means he's assuming that experience goes the same for or should have. But he clearly doesn't believe that because he took it out on other people who were obviously having different experiences. And why in the world would you do that if if you weren't believing there was something better? Pat, that, that question tees up really well into the reference to Leo Tolstoy that Peterson had. Regard and Tolstoy, mm. I don't know where he Peterson pulled this, but Tolstoy mm. was talking about human existence and how you essentially have four reactions or f- there are four kinds of people. Tolstoy kind of categorizes people that react to human existence as people who one retreat into childlike ignorance, two pursue mindless pleasure, three drag out an evil and meaningless life, knowing beforehand nothing can come of it, which I think kind of relates to the point you're talking about. So if life is evil and meaningless, why keep living? Someone with that attitude, you know, is by their definition would be seen as weak if they didn't kill themselves and put an end to the meaningless suffering that they were going through in the world. But then the fourth kind of person is these kind of mass shooter examples that destroy life because it is evil and meaningless. So I was kind of like reading that, scratching my head, because I'm an optimistic person. So I would see suffering in the world, but would try to overcome it, try to learn more about people or why I'm going through it, etc. Try to find meaning through it, basically. So that's, I think, more of the line of thought I come from, but to even try to think about life being evil and meaningless and how you'd react to that is tough for me. So if if I was a person that was thinking this way, human existence is meaningless or evil or both, I could understand the first two better where it's you might retreat into the child childlike ignorance and you're kind of busying yourself with other things, not trying to think about existential questions. Or I can also understand how someone would pursue mindless pleasure, pursuing sex, food, nice things, material things. I can understand, but then it's when we get into the bottom two of essentially taking your own life or killing others. Thankfully, most people don't fall into those kind of categories that think this way, I would assume. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of weight to that. So I'm just, I want to get your guys' thoughts. Do you think... Cain killed Abel to spite God. I don't think he thought about it consciously, but yes. Yeah. And and you might you you might be exactly right, Logan. It may not be a true conscious thought he had, but how strong is the subconscious to know and to direct our actions anyway? Mm. So that that's why I think for sure it was to spite God. The creator was trying to slow him down, you know, trying to say why are you feeling this way? What's going on? If you don't interrogate this, it will t- rule you, you know? And Patrick discovered Consumed. how easy it is for these blind rage feelings to rule you. Like, And you can hardly yeah. blame him. Well, I've had a lot less serious of a situation that Pat's gone through, but I've definitely had moments yeah. like that too where you just kind of 
lose the sense of what's happening around you and you're so <sighs> angered or upset. I'm in Enneagram 9 and anger is essentially the emotion that nines experience the most or suppress or whatever. And so I've definitely been in those kind of situations too where it's like, why was I that angry at that? I, did, I really didn't need to be that angry. But yeah, to take out a, a reaction like that, like a murderous thought, yeah, you just, you have to talk yourself into a, a crazy spot to be in that sort of situation. So if I could curve it a little less hopelessly. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> um, let's try to swing it out of this dick. Peterson <laughs> tells of his First Nations friend who had a terrible life. Mm. Who, uh, yeah, was taken pretty much taken from his parents by the school and they abused him in the school. Just a terrible life. And, and my question based off of this is, how can we take on our suffering in order to transform it instead of letting it ruin our lives? You have to do it on purpose. Like you have to be intentional about it. It has to be a, a true willing choice against your natural self. Something that I liked in this realm of the discussion that he mentioned was even Christ felt abandoned on the cross. So when you are thinking about voluntarily taking on the suffering in your life or in the world, there's someone that has not only given us an allowance for what we can endure, or what we can suffer and what we can overcome, but he's someone that has gone through the thing himself and can relate. Something about suffering or taking on suffering is it's easier when you have a community or have friends. I think of like the Harry Potter books and movies and then Lord of the Rings. I've only seen the movies, <laughs> but it's this there's this burden of being or there's there's this this journey that you're on and there's this suffering that's involved. Yeah. But there's something about being with people in a community or, or having people that also are voluntarily taking on this burden with you Together. or taking yeah. on their own burdens and can relate with you. There's something powerful about that. And it makes it worthwhile too to know that one, you're not alone, but two, other people are doing it and overcoming it. You know, why shouldn't you do likewise? In light of that, can I quote Jesus real quick? Take up your cross and follow me. That is so like, here's another psychologically deep statement we get from Jesus. Yeah. Take up your cross and follow me. What, in light of all that we're saying, what does that mean here? So, so much. Point out the tip of the iceberg for us. Come on. Begin to describe. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, take up your cross and follow me. It's the same idea of voluntarily suffer the world with me for the kingdom come. For there is a line for restoration at the end of, of that story creation. you were sharing about Peterson's friend that he had in describing that friend and how he responded to this situation. He said, you can decide to be a quote-unquote good person and actually live that way, impossible as it seems. And to me, I think not only does that tie into the story about the friend that you brought up earlier, I think it also applies to picking up the cross. It seems impossible to pick it up. It seems impossible to carry the thing. 
But also going back to pre that previous chapter where it's where are we setting our aim? Where are we aiming at? We're striving to do a difficult thing. And, and we want to make that a habitual lifestyle to not only accept that we will suffer, but to take on the suffering, to learn from it, to, to grow from it, to be like Christ in some way. We can't actually ultimately be like him, but it, it's like that's where our aim is. To put one foot back in the ditch, what did you think? What did you think of Nietzsche's quote on page 153? Can I read it for you? And this one you can make more sense of than the last quote we tried to understand from Nietzsche. But here we go. Distress, whether psychic, physical, or intellectual, need not at all produce nihilism. Nihilism, that is, the, re the radical rejection of value, meaning, and desirability. Such distress always permits a variety of interpretation. So distress, you know, suffering... He, Nietzsche is saying suffering does not automatically need to produce nihilism. Mm. You know, there are a variety of sponsors to suffering other than nihilism, which I found interesting coming from him. Yeah. I wonder why I just glossed over that when reading. Like, I definitely read that, but I didn't think about it too much. Wow. My initial response is something along the lines of rejoice. You don't need to default to nihilism when life is suffering or life is difficult there is meaning but yeah i i like pat i read that but i don't think i thought about it adequately enough yeah and it's encouraging like you said logan yeah, coming from such a powerful philosopher like mm. dang <laughs> because there's a lot of ideologies out in society right now where it seems like suffering is the logical lead-in to nihilism right and I think, and I could be, I'm probably wrong, well, but my guess is Nietzsche will take it more to like a hero kind of archetype. He'll say, maybe not nihilism, but you can actually overcome with your power to will. Mm. You know, that's where Nietzsche, I think, would encourage someone to transform their suffering and try to voluntarily take it on in a, like a heroism mm. kind of way. But I could be totally off on that. I think that tracks with kind of what we've been talking about thus far in the discussion of this chapter. Mm. And I don't know why I put this other quote in relation to this, yeah, but there's a um, lot Solzhenitsyn has this line where he talks about um, the dividing line of good and evil goes through the heart of every human being. Ah. Quite a jagged line, that is, but it does. <laughs> well, I thought the whole part about him and the soviet labor camp was profound as far as the questions he was asking himself yeah. and the observations he was trying to make habitual while he was in those camps yeah but and for the listener at home this man is someone that believed very strongly in the communist party and i think it kind of worked his way up a little bit and then was fighting a war and then got against the Germans, another great power. And then I don't, I don't recall why he got sent to a labor camp, but he eventually finds himself there and is contemplating his own behavior. How did I have a hand in, in my own catastrophe here? If I did have a hand in it, how, how did it happen? How yeah. have I missed the mark in the past? 
How have I acted against my own conscience? Can any of these things that I've done been rectified? Can I yeah. stop making these mistakes? How do I repair the damage of my past failures? I think these are all really good questions we can be asking ourselves too. And again, obviously it's not going to be as dramatic as a Soviet labor camp, or at least I hope it's not, but the ruthless introspection. Is it Solzhenitsyn? Is that how you say his name? Solzhenitsyn would be my best guess. Okay, thank you. I think, yeah, he was asking himself very good questions. The temptation in a situation like that when you're suffering to the extent that he was in that camp is to say, how could this happen to me? I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why I'm here. And that could very well have just been his response too, and have done nothing and had stayed dejected or resentful or, or depressed or what, you know, but he instead took action and thought, okay, what have I been doing here that hasn't been going right? And how have I been blind to it in the past? What can I do to make amends for it? It reminds me a little bit too of when he's talking about the historic Jews of the Old Testament and how when calamity would befall yeah. them, it was never, God, you did this. We're turning away even harder. It was always a response of, oh, no, we were corrupt. And they take responsibility for their own action and then try to make right with God. You know, they repent. And he actually outlined yeah. a cycle that they go through. And I think we might have even talked about it in our Bible classes in high school. I can't quite remember. You guys might be able to help me. But uh, as far as this kind of biblical cycle that Hebrew people go through in the Old Testament. Oh, for sure. Where they come upon success and fortune. The country's doing well. But then this pride and arrogance set in. And then that eventually leads to corruption. While at the same time, the state's being obsessed with power. And then it forgets its duties of taking care of the widows and the orphans, which is one of my favorite verses in James, but we don't need to go there You're right hitting now. on a lot of stuff, bro. This is good. And this is all stuff Peterson's outlining, too. These aren't my own thoughts. I should preface with that. But So then this all eventually leads to them deviating from the covenant they made with God. Then a prophet will rise up, rebuke people publicly, and the king most of the time. And then the one of the last things they do will warn of judgment. The words are ignored, or at least they're not listened to until it's the last possible minute. Then the people of God lose a battle. They are subjugated to another kingdom's rule. But then eventually they'll, they will repent and they blame their own misfortune on their own failure to adhere to God's word. And they know that they could do better and then they do better. They eventually become free again, and they'll rebuild their state, and then they repeat the cycle. I thought that that was such an interesting tie-in with, uh, again, is it Solzhenitsyn? Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn, thank you. I'm going to have trouble with that name <laughs> for the rest of the podcast. But I think it ties into well with that introspection that he's doing in himself as far as have I been causing suffering in other people and in my own life? How do I take responsibility for that? How do I make the necessary changes to prevent that from happening? But then with the Jewish people, it's looking at the relationship with God and saying, okay, how, how have we been missing the mark with this? Oh, there were some really obvious examples of this king or this prophet. Remember this prophet saying this, that, and the other, and how we didn't listen to him? No, we did listen to him. Oh, but it was too late. And 
Yeah, there's something. Uh, and we can look at those examples and say, how did those people ever get in those situations? How could they ever be doing those things? But if we looked carefully at ourselves, we would realize we act in a similar way, despite our best intentions, I think. So on the same page definitely, that Peterson is mentioning the Israelites' history of repentance and realizing you know, how they could have done better, he says this quote. He says, We fail to notice that things are changing or that corruption is taking root and everything falls apart. Is that the fault of reality? Of God? Or do things fall apart because we have not paid sufficient attention? I had this one highlighted. I believe. And if you can just let me kind of mm -hmm. run right into my favorite quote of this chapter. Please do. Is uh, when the hurricane hit New Orleans. Here's the quote. Willful blindness and corruption took the city down. A hurricane is an act of God, but failure to prepare when the necessity for preparation is well known. Yep. That's sin. That's failure to hit the mark. All the wages of sin is death That's yeah awesome crazy. that was a really good point wow. about the new orleans quote and i thought it was interesting how peterson was talking about how success makes us complacent and new orleans or new orleans but essentially that city thought they were prepared and that they were you know successful in a lot of other areas probably i guess you could assume but when you forget to pay attention and take what you have for granted things can fall apart or at least that's a point that peterson was making how success can make you complacent and then you're not paying attention to things as closely as maybe you should be thinking in that context of are we too successful are we not challenging ourselves enough to where we're not paying attention to where our vulnerabilities are so when something difficult befalls us or we encounter it do we blame God or ourselves or reality? And kind of answering my own question is that the Jews of the Old Testament, they were always blaming themselves when things fell apart. And I think that's probably the better way to go about it. Viewing God's goodness as something true, regardless of what's happening in our own suffering or in our own lives. And I think that takes us into this next notion of holding yourself accountable for when things falls apart takes us into this next section of a personal challenge one of the questions that hit me hard in this sort of section was have you taken full advantage of the opportunities offered to you i think about that and in my day-to-day -day life and i can honestly say that no i do not take full advantage of the opportunities that i see every day whether that's connecting with other people, improving my relationship with my wife, or, you know, I, the list can go on. There, There's a portion, too, where it's like, you need to take care of yourself. You don't always need to be striving, working on something, you know. But at the same time, you don't want to get to the end of the day and feel like you've wasted yeah. the day or that it was meaningless. But I thought some good aims were... Make peace with your brother. Treat your spouse with dignity and respect. Are your habits good for your health and well-being? Are there things you know you could do that would make things around you better? 
you know, all kind of in this area of this personal challenge of the, what are these opportunities? Are you holding yourself accountable when things fall apart? And ultimately stop doing what you know to be is wrong. It's sin. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be curious to get some of your guys' thoughts just on some of those challenges, things that stand out to you. It could be things that I've mentioned or things that you were reading. There's pushback. Okay, never mind. Austin, you go, you go, you go, you go. No, you have something. Okay. Very back to the beginning of pain, anxiety. There's a lot of pushback that that presents with these questions that Jordan Peterson asks that if we were to address truthfully with ourselves hmm. like this, it becomes a lot harder than you would otherwise think because of the difficulty of sacrificing the things you know you ought not do because of the pain it will cause or anxiety it'll cause. And the potency of that pain and anxiety Mm. delays you doing these things for however long. So it really does take a super strong-willed person to even like clean your room, really. So that's why... So many people ah. can read this, know it's true, and still not do it. Too great a cost. Yeah. Yeah. Because this the pain that's gonna come along with the sacrifice of having to do these things is too great. Right on, Patrick. And I even know I'm trying to think of just something personally, like my room isn't dirty, but it's not beautiful. And if I were to truly like go all out on it, it would take money because I'd have to buy decorations. I would have to put in a whole bunch of time and effort to make it worth something. Whereas I could just sit and play video games or something with that time instead. But which will add up more in the end. Well, who's to say the discipline of cleaning my room could be a stepping stone into the next thing that I could do. Right. And you never know until you begin the adventure. So I will say, I mean, our house is in good condition. It's not, it wasn't a fixer upper, but decorating rooms to both Peyton and I, when we actually sit down and do the thing and we have the decorations and we're putting them up or we're painting the walls or we're, it's very satisfying afterwards to look at the room and be proud of the work that you've done. And then it motivates you to move on to the next thing and you feel more empowered to do more or at least especially do, to do the similar project again in another room. You know, it's, it, it builds your confidence. It's exciting. It's, a, it's definitely something we both enjoy doing, something that we work together well as as a team. Austin, I'd, I'd be curious to get some of your thoughts on the literal cleaning your room or fixing your room. So Peterson will say something like, you are your room. Mm-hmm. Like we, we are directly and psychologically affected by the spaces that we are in control over. And I think there would be a lot of practical good things to say about having a clean room having room having things in your room that are meaningful Mm. to you quotes pictures posters art 
photos of your friends and family. Uh, <laughs> motivational, inspirational quotes. Yeah, the room is definitely an analogy for the self. What Pat was saying, I think even in a literal sense, there is wisdom there. So what do you say when someone asks, what's the point? What better do you have to do? Mm. Please tell. Interesting. That's a good, I struggle that's a good keeping my room clean, or I know that there are certain areas where I just pile my stuff that are out of sight, out of mind, or something like that. But that's not perfect <laughs> order. Mm. You can apply that metaphorically to ourselves, too, where it's we have those areas that we're sensitive of or we know need improving, but we don't want to touch. We can store a lot of baggage there in those areas, or at least I do. If someone's saying, why even try? Trying is worthwhile. Yeah, to Austin's point, why would you not try? <laughs> Pain. And why are you so sure? Pain, yeah. And why are you so sure that cleaning your room won't help you do the thing that does matter to you? That's fair. Because if you think life is meaningless, then that's another question. Or that that's another conversation we could have. But if you do have Definitely. an answer to that question... How about this too, Austin, kind of piggybacking off of that point, maybe cleaning your room might not be the biggest thing on your to-do list, or it's not the most meaningful thing in your life, but maybe it could at least in part help you to stop acting in a particular despicable manner whenever you realize you are acting that way, or maybe it could stop it could help you to stop saying things that make you feel weak and ashamed. And instead, it could help you to speak honorable things and it could help make you feel strong or at least stronger. It's no fun. Like you were saying, Pat, it's, it's painful to quote unquote clean your room. But you can when you're done or at least again, it's a process. It's not it's something you have to keep up with doing, but. When you get to a point when it, where it is clean and in order, you're proud of it. And, you know, that could make you feel empowered or confident to, to do the other more difficult thing. Don't reorganize the state until you have ordered your own experience. How about that one? Dang. Be humble. You will start to say what you really think. You will start to tell your wife, parents friends, etc., what you really need and want from them. You will correct the omission for something you've left undone. Your head will start to clear up as you stop filling it with lies. Your experience will improve as you stop distorting it with inauthentic actions. All of these things that have been previously listed will lead to discovery of more things you are doing wrong, and then you should stop doing those as well. For the reader at home, I was listening some of the attributes that that might entail based on what Peterson was writing about. Thank you for tuning in to this week's book club discussion. Please let us know if you have any suggestions as to books we should read or topics we should discuss by contacting us at beingbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's beingbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you join us next week for another conversation.